is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to be looking at uh, the whole of John chapter 6 together. Let me start by reading verse 35 again that Robin's just read for us. Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Many of you will know that one of my jobs here at St. Ebbs is to work alongside students and uh, young people, and I've been doing some particular thinking about that this week. Um, I try every week, actually, to to think about my job, but um, uh, this coming week we're talking to a few people about a few people who are about to go into ministry about what ministry amongst students is like. And obviously the answer to that is that it's wonderful and it's the best job in the world. Um, but um, I was kind of looking, okay, how can I helpfully convey stuff to these people? And um, I came across some stats that tell me that people in the kind of student age bracket, people aged 18 to 24, are on the whole strikingly dissatisfied with life. So a joint survey by Warwick and Edinburgh universities asked, I can't remember how many young people, but those they asked how often they feel cheerful, 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds responded rarely or never. Have you been feeling good about yourself, 31%, rarely or never? Have you been feeling relaxed, 45%, rarely or never? Have you had energy to spare, 55%, rarely or or never. And that's some stats for 18 to 24 year olds, but how about everybody else? Satisfied? Fulfilled? Or is it the case that when you stand back and think about your life, you think, is that it? Lots of us will feel that we haven't achieved as much as we should have done. Or even more depressingly, sometimes we achieve exactly what we set out to achieve. And it turns out to be kind of average. For lots of us here, we got into Oxford. And now we feel like imposters. Or in all sorts of things. We we enjoy the good stuff for a while, the relationship, the job, the money. But it's only a kind of heartbeat until we start worrying about, what, what if I lose it? Or what if there's some better job or some better relationship that would make me feel more fulfilled and more satisfied? We're having that um, talk on C.S. Lewis on Tuesday evening. And um, I thought I'd give you a little taster of uh, some of what C.S. Lewis has to say on this subject. Let me read a quote from him. It's the longest one. But he says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. I think I know what he means. Do you? In fact, it's in the Bible, actually. 
Um, don't worry about turning to it. But in uh, Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes says that he undertook great projects. He built houses for himself and planted vineyards and he amassed silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces and all the delights of a man's heart. And what he found was that, in his words, it's like chasing after the wind. So what do you do when you can't find it? Actually, I came across that C.S. Lewis quote in a a book by a Christian author called Tim Keller called Making Sense of God. It's a brilliant book. And he says, when people can't find it, they can't find the thing, there's basically two different approaches they take. Either they say satisfaction is out there somewhere. And um, maybe the problem is kind of Michael Buble style, I just haven't met you yet. Or maybe the problem is that there's a person or there's a system holding me back stopping me from getting the thing. Or maybe I just need to work harder. Or maybe I'm just failing and um, I'll never find it. Or, alternatively, people say, it, satisfaction, it's not out there. Just give up trying. You'll you'll never find it. Be cynical. What do we do about the fact that satisfaction and fulfillment are really, really hard to get hold of? Well, let me read verse 35 again. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is claiming, isn't he, to be able to deal with the hunger that just gnaws away on the inside of everybody. It's quite a claim and one worth listening to. But it comes with a health warning. The health warning is that Jesus is not the kind of self-help guru who is going to give you some tips that are basically unobjectionable. They might not help, but they're not going to do any harm. It's interesting, at the the start of this chapter, in uh, verse 2 of uh, John 6, the start of the chapter, there is a great crowd following Jesus. And then back over in verse 24, they are still willing to sail across a lake to hear what he's got to say. But then by verse 67, not only have the crowd all left, But Jesus is forced to ask his 12 remaining followers whether they would like to leave as well. Jesus was very popular. And then he started talking about this stuff. And almost nobody wanted to hear it. So I guess there may be some of us who find that this evening. But there may be some of us who hear Jesus' claims here and what backs them up. And find satisfaction that lasts for eternity. Two things Jesus is going to teach us about the things that we are hungry for. Number one, Jesus can give you what you're hungry for. Jesus can give you what you're hungry for. And we're looking here at the first 24 verses. So it's these two famous stories, Jesus feeding 5,000 and then walking on the water. And I think they're probably two of the more better-known stories in Jesus' life, aren't they? Uh, If you're at all familiar with the Gospels, you may well have come across them. We'll start, zoom in on verse 5. And as we say, Jesus... He's attracted a huge following by now. And from a mountainside, he sees crowds coming and he asks the question, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Philip, who is a local, we think, of the area, um, says effectively, you've got to be joking. Um, You would need half a year's wages to feed this lot. And they, they find out that basically nobody has thought to bring any food with them except for one boy's packed lunch. And he's got five loaves, two fish, and... Lots will know what happens next. Jesus 
miraculously makes it stretch, not just to the extent that everybody gets some, but to the extent that they fill 12 baskets with leftovers um, at the end of the story. So they end up with way more than they started with, having fed 5,000 people. Now, I think it's just worth us pausing to feel the force of it. And um, so I have, I have here um, a prop. So um, 5,000 people were fed on this day, or that is 5,000, just counting the men, so 5,000 families, almost certainly more than 5,000. Now, for the, I've got six. They're not loaves of bread here, but they're bagels, and I guess that may, be, that may be close. I've got six in here, so this is more than what they had to start with. I think for the sake of mathematical ease, we'll say that we are 250 this evening, okay? So we are um, one quarter of one-fifth of the crowd. So here is one-fifth of five bagels, and we're one quarter of it. So um, I get rid of that bit and get rid of that bit. So this is what we've got to go around between us. So if I halve that, um, everybody up in the balcony can have that bit, and uh, everybody on the ground floor can have that bit. And if we could just please do it so that at the end we've got 12 basketfuls of bagel left over, um, that would be really good. It's, it's a miracle. And I don't know what I'm going to do with this now. I'm going to put that down here. Um, he feeds the 5,000. Next, he walks on water. Now, when you read this, I don't know if you think this is a slightly funny miracle. Do you, do you wonder quite what the point is? It's, it's the only miracle that Jesus does that has no obvious beneficiary. So verse 18, his disciples, they're, they're in a boat on the lake, and there's a strong wind blowing, but it says... They're rowing along okay. It doesn't mention anything about um, them being about to capsize or anything like this. Uh, but then they see Jesus walking on the lake, and that's the bit that they're scared about. But verse 20, he says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. So they take him into the boat. Scratch your head and think, why? why? What, what, what was that achieving? And I think I would have scratched my head for an awful lot longer um, if it weren't for the fact that in our uh, morning services at the moment, we are going through the book of Exodus. And uh, in the book of Exodus, we've seen a lot of things that feel like these two stories. We've seen God introduce himself to his people as I am, which is a, a more literal translation of what he says there when he says, it is I in verse 20. We've seen in Exodus, God rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. And that was commemorated uh, through the Passover, at least part of it was, and verse 4 says this all happened at the Passover. We've seen God accomplish that rescue through his miraculous control over the water uh, of the Red Sea when he split it in half. We've seen God in the wilderness provide bread miraculously for his people through Moses. It's the bread, they called it manna, that came down from heaven. And Jesus here, in these two miracles, the, the miraculous feeding and the, the kind of water miracle, is deliberately, I think, evoking all of that and saying, the God that you met in the book of Exodus, here I am. Everything that Exodus taught you about God is true of me, Jesus says. I am powerful to save people from the slavery that they're in. I can bring people all the way to the promised land that awaits them. And on the way, I can provide people with everything that they need. I can satisfy people, and therefore they can trust me. That's what Jesus is saying about himself as he evokes these two great episodes from the story of the Exodus. And so Jesus can give you what you're hungry for. 
because he's God. He's got all power, even over, even over the, the, the water, even over bread, and he uses that power to provide for his people. That is who Jesus is, is claiming to be. The crowd who are there, um, they think that in that story back in Exodus, it was Moses who provided the bread, which is why in verse 14, they think to themselves, oh, brilliant, well, this is, this is the prophet who, who uh, come into the world. And they're thinking, verse 15, well, maybe he'll do the same thing as Moses and get us some political liberation from the Romans as well. They, they, they think in Exodus it was all about Moses. But if you look over to verse 32, Jesus says, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father. The person who provided the bread is God. And that is Jesus' claim for himself. Now, in Exodus, God was bringing his people through the wilderness to a promised land where, where, uh, where they belonged. And in the end, kind of full, complete satisfaction comes only when Jesus has finished his work of getting us home to the promised land of heaven with him. That's where we get full satisfaction. But there is a glorious measure of satisfaction that we can have now. And we will find it not at the end of a rainbow or at the top of a greasy pole or inside a pay packet, or in the arms of her or him. We won't find it within our own hearts. We can't achieve it. We can't find it by searching for it. We will get it from Jesus as a gift. The Exodus God, the, the one who owns everything, can give us what we need to know satisfaction. Maybe you're here this evening precisely because you are searching for it don't know what it is, but you know that you're looking for it. The search could be over this evening because Jesus is saying, I can give you what you're hungry for. But what's the thing? What, what, what is it that he gives us? Well, here is our second point. Jesus is what we're hungry for. Jesus is what we're hungry for. Verse 25 and the verses that follow is where the crowd start getting a little bit jumpy about what Jesus is saying. We, we see, we've seen verse 24, there's still loads of them, and they are really keen to get close to Jesus. But in verse 26, Jesus explains, sort of unveils, why they like him. He says, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, he says to the crowd, you're looking for me because you're basically interested in free food. And possibly some political liberation as well, we saw in verse 15. And both of those things, free food, political, like they, they're great things so far as they go. But Jesus has got something better than that to offer. Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for food that spoils. And there's a message for each of us to take to heart. Don't Work for food that spoils. Don't live for something that you are going to lose or that you might lose. In the end, all the stuff in this world that we might pin our hopes for satisfaction on are like the contents of your food recycling bin. Spoils. It was delicious once. You paid money for it. And now it's flies and bin juice. And that is the way of the world. The job you are so desperate for, it gets restructured out of existence. 
that the political cause that you spend your life fighting for is regarded as problematic by the next generation. The fame you built is forgotten. Don't work for food that spoils. And therefore, I think Jesus is saying, don't come to me as one way of getting food that spoils. Because I've got something better I want to give you. He's got something to offer that endures forever. Verse 32 and 33, he says, it comes to you from God, just, just the same way as the bread in Exodus did, from God. So verse 34, the crowd say, effectively, oh yes, please. Um, please, can we have some of this everlasting food? It sounds, it sounds absolutely terrific. Verse 35, I am the bread. Come to me and you'll never be hungry. Believe in me and you'll never be thirsty. So what is the bread that Jesus gives? Jesus. He's the provider and the provision. He's the giver and the gift. Jesus is the thing that Jesus offers to us. And he says it's what we most need. What does it mean for Jesus to call himself bread? I guess if, if in our culture you were to call yourself bread, you, you wouldn't be saying very much particularly. It's nice, it's unexciting, it's functional. It's a bit less exciting than a bagel, in my opinion, but you're not saying very much. In the context that Jesus was speaking into, to call yourself bread is to say that you are, you are the essential to life itself. If people don't have you, they die. And I don't know if you noticed, life is a repeated word throughout the chapter. You don't have bread, you don't have life. And so that's what Jesus, Jesus is saying. If you don't have me, in the end, you have had it. It's essential. But as well as saying he's essential, I think Jesus is saying he's enough. Whoever, uh, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He's enough. He's saying, I will satisfy you. You won't be hungry if you've got me. To use C.S. Lewis's language, Jesus is saying, I am it. He gives us himself. Or more specifically, uh, he gives us his flesh. If you have a look on to verse 51. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I was messing about with this bagel earlier, but if, if I had needed it, um, these bagels would have given me life. And they would have been able to do so because some other stuff had died first. Guess there was a, a wheat plant that somebody cut down and crushed up and whatever else you do. It was broken into pieces for me, for my life. And the same is true of Jesus. Died so that we could have life. Everybody dies, um, even Jesus' followers, even the people who, who came to him on this day for eternal life. They died. And the Bible teaches that death is a judicial thing. Death is a, is a judgment from God on the human race for having turned away from him. But Jesus came to take that sentence on himself so that as he died, anybody who receives him receives life that is death resistant. His flesh, his body was, was broken apart for us so that we can have life and never hunger. 
well, this is all very nice, somebody says, but I am not actually convinced that Jesus is really what I'm hungry, hungry for. All this business about his flesh is all fine, but I think what I'm hungry for in life, to be honest, is just getting my health back. Preachers say things like, we've all got a God-shaped hole in our hearts, but to be honest, I think the hole in my heart is shaped quite a lot more like a first in my degree, or like a promotion, or like a spouse. And my question is, are you sure? Because history is littered with people who thought they had found the thing that would meet their needs, and then they got it, and it turned out their needs were deeper than they thought. Turned out that they only really wanted the research position because they wanted to feel significant. And then they got a measure of significance for a while, but not really. When all along, Jesus was saying, you are so significant that I died for you. To use the food image. It's as though we always think that what we're hungry for is McDonald's. And and you may identify with that illustration. That's what we, we always think we're hungry for McDonald's or Popeye's or whatever it is. But the more of that kind of stuff that you put in, the more that it becomes obvious that that is not what's meeting your needs. That's not where they lie. You think you're hungry for nuggets when really what your body is hungry for is for some vitamins and minerals or something. I don't know. (laughs) We'll find that the things we, we, we think we're hungry for are actually just kind of scratching the surface. The hole in our hearts is bigger than we think. And in the end, each of us will die and we'll meet our maker. And at that point, if not before, it will be very clear that all the health and all the influence and all the degree certificates in the world won't help us. And the only thing that will is the fact that Jesus gave his flesh for us when he died on the cross. Maybe there's others in the room thinking, well, I am a Christian, I have accepted Jesus, and I still feel hungry. I hear your neat and tidy solution but there is not a lot of satisfaction going on here. It's tempting to think, well, maybe verse 35, Jesus was slightly overstating it. Or maybe he's very good at post-death stuff, but if I want bread now, if I want satisfaction now, I need to sort that out for myself. Or to kind of put the same problem another way as a question, how can I appropriate the life that Jesus' flesh gives. How can I go from the fact that Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago to me not being hungry for satisfaction anymore? I think the answer is the same as the answer to the question, how do I go from food being on a plate to food giving me life? The answer is, I eat it. And um, again, that is a repeated idea in this chapter. Verse 51, we looked at, whoever eats this bread will live forever. Or verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in ye. Or it's there in verse 54, or verse 56, or verse 58. Eat. That is, take on board in a deliberate, repeated way. One of the reasons that we take communion is that as we do that, we are acting out the fact that I need to come to Jesus and take him on board. Not that I automatically do that by eating this bread, 
but I'm, I'm enacting, I'm, I'm starting to get my head into the fact that that's what I need to do. I need to come to him and receive him and feed on him. Both in communion and in John 6, the way that I feed on him is, to, is by trusting him, by coming to him. Believing in him is the language that, that Jesus himself uses here. By deciding daily, I am going to come to Jesus and ask him for more of him in my life. Ask him for his help. And as we do that, we'll experience more and more him satisfying us and meeting our needs. Perhaps if you're here and you're a Christian who is still feeling very hungry, one question might be, well, have you stopped eating? Have you stopped feeding on Jesus? He offers himself to you again today. Just as we finish, kind of circle back to where we started and note that when Jesus offers himself to us, he does so not as a kind of snack, not as a, a, as a light bite. Um, the previous French president, Francois Hollande, was nicknamed Flambe, which is a soft, sweet, squidgy treat, which was an insult, I believe, uh, towards him. That was the nickname people gave him. Not Jesus. There's nothing soft and squidgy um, in this chapter, is there? Verse 60 says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And the, the word hard there is sometimes used of food. It's tough, it's difficult. And it is a hard teaching, isn't it? Jesus' teaching here says that our needs and hungers are bigger and deeper than we realize. Saying that we can't sort ourselves out. He's saying nothing other than Jesus will do the job. But for all the people who that day found Jesus' teaching too difficult, the, the issue wasn't lack of evidence. They, they, they'd been fed by him miraculously. They'd seen the feeding of the 5,000. The issue was whether they were willing to follow the evidence where it led. And in the end, in verse 68, Peter asked the question, which I've often come back to when I've experienced doubts in faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Who else makes claims like this and can back them up? Where else are we going to go to find satisfaction if not this man? Jesus comes to a hungry world and a hungry you, hungry me, and he says, on the strength of his divine godlike power, he says, I can give you what you are hungry for. He says, I am what you're hungry for. If you'll come to me, feed on me, and only if, then you'll find that aching hunger in your soul starting to be satisfied more and more until fully. And it's no longer bread that keeps us going for the journey, but it's bread on which we feast for eternity. Jesus says, I'm what you're hungry for. Will you have me today? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that with, your, with all your power, you choose to use it to provide for us and that you choose to use it to provide even more than we would ask you for. Give us yourself. We pray that as we have heard your word now, as we come to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, we 
take this opportunity to eat again, to receive you, to feed on you, and to know hunger satisfies until it is perfectly. Amen.